Howard-Chuck starts back in again. Got by Clark, still kept the puck, deep to Christian in front, and a nice play there as Lukowicz gets the goal. That was a super three-way pass, started by that youngster Howard-Chuck, and throws it across. Lukowicz was cutting right in front of the net, just in perfect timing. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Episode 44 of the PHA podcast is part two of our discussion with Morris Lukowicz. Morris gives you inside access to behind-the-scenes stories from his early years in the WHA and his NHL days with Winnipeg, Boston, and L.A. We also discuss sports psychology, nutrition, mental health, life after hockey, and much more in a wide-ranging interview that stretched over two nights and past midnight for this particular episode. Morris is a fascinating guy with a great life story. Don't forget to listen to part one of this interview on episode 42 of the show. And just a reminder to join us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You don't want to miss out on our monthly newsletter either. You'll get updates, news, exclusive content, and free giveaways. Just visit our website and register on the newsletter page. Finally, please consider subscribing to our show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave a rating and or review. This greatly helps these amazing hockey stories reach fans around the world. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Morris Lukowicz. Yeah, I would imagine. And boy, there's an interesting situation you walk into, Morris, in Houston because this is a, a, a real good team in either league. you got a lot of veterans. You talked about Larry Hale and uh, Larry Lund, Teddy Taylor, Murray Hall, Paul Popeil, John Shella. And you got a lot of really good young kids, Ruskowski, Preston, uh, John Tonelli, Mark Howe, Ron Graham. Talk a little bit about becoming Houston Air- and Arrow at that first camp. Uh, what's, it seems like a lot of camaraderie on that team, a very close-knit team. What, what was your impression as you uh, hit your first major league uh, training camp? Um, what I did, I didn't have any hockey sticks, so it ended up that uh, – um, Teddy Taylor, uh, the captain of the team, lent me a couple of hits. Now, Teddy used a really heavy stick, mm-hmm. and it was also a low lie. So it wasn't ideal, and yet, like, I just actually didn't have any hockey sticks. So it ended up that uh, that was a little bit of frustrating. And yet, I mean, the very first day of camp, all we did was skate. And so, I mean, I was flying around uh, as much as I could. Right. And... Uh, and like I was in real, I was in good shape. And you know that was at a time that was the nineteen seventy, seventy six, seventy seven, where guys were just starting to come to camp in shape instead of coming to camp to get in shape. And um, I was like, I was one of the first guys. Like when I showed up on day one, I was in amazing shape. 
So where other guys were came and were possibly some of the veterans, they were getting into shape there. Like I was flying around and, and my aerobic capacity was amazing. And, and it was an advantage for me. So like I was out there just in, I just gave her a hundred percent all the time. It was, uh, I mean, the camp was pretty intimidating. There's lots of big guys out there. And, um, but I mean, I just, uh, I can even remember there were a couple of veterans that when I was flying around. They'd, they'd say, Hey rookie, slow down. What are you doing? <laughs> and I'd slow down for a second and I would just put the guy pedal back to the metal. Cause I thought that was the way I'd make the team. And, um, uh, ended up the very first. And then the second day we scrimmaged And this kind of interesting thing that happened was I was put on a right wing with Gordy Howe. So Gordy was center. I forget who the left winger was. Uh, it might have been John Tonelli, I think. But in the, I was like, I remember standing at that face-off dot, thinking, "Oh my gosh! Like this is amazing! Like Gordy Howe, I'm on a line with Gordy Howe." It ends up we get the puck and we get down and they're in. We get a shot on the goalie, and we go over and face off uh, to the goalie's uh, left. And uh, I'm a right winger, so I line up on the boards, and it ends up I line up right beside Mark Howe. And uh, it ends up that uh, I kind of look, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, Mark Howe, this is incredible. And right at that moment, Mark takes and just spears me. Like he buries about two feet of stick into my left leg. And... uh, I mean, he was, you know, every dog marks its uh, location. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what he was doing. I mean, he was a left winger. And so, yeah, so he ends up just spearing me. And so it ends up, I'm going after him and uh, to have a scrap. He kind of skate, skates away and I'm going after him. And uh, who? And a guy steps right in front of me, John Shella. He was a defenseman, and he says, you don't want to do that. And I said, what are you talking about? He just speared me. I'm just going to go and you know, take a strip out of him. And he says, you don't want to do that. Gordy will get you. And it was my first uh, experience of uh, finding out that uh, how Gordy protected his boys. And so I just so I just said to John, I said, really? He says, yeah. And he says, Gordy, will get you. Just forget about it. So it was amazing. Like John just passed away here about six months ago. And I can still remember so clear how he stepped right in there. And he just said it quiet, quietly enough that only he and I could hear it. Maybe Gordy could too. Anyways, and I just said, oh, okay. And so I just backed off. And so it was kind of interesting though what happened was about – Two days later, I was sitting in the dressing room after practice, and uh, Teddy's sticks were not very good, <laughs> right. and because uh, they were really heavy, and uh, it ended up that uh, so I was in the dressing room, and there was just myself at the end, and and who comes walking towards me but Mark Howe, and Mark's got a stick in his hands, and I remember I still had my equipment on, and I was just get embraced here because I thought oh my gosh like he's going to spear me again <laughs> and uh, and he comes over and he says uh, he says you know what I've been watching you for a couple of days 
And he said, you know that stick that you're using? He says, it isn't the right model for you. He says, it's too low a lie. The puck keeps sliding off the heel of the heeler, and it's getting in your skates all the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's too heavy. He said, here, test out one of these tomorrow. This is my model. It's a lie seven. That other one you're using is about a lie five. And he said, this is really nice because it'll really help you get away a quick wrist shot. And he says, so use test one out tomorrow if you like it. He says, I'll get you a half a dozen. I'll give you a half a dozen of mine until we can get your own pattern. And I said, really? And he says, yeah. Huh. So it's amazing. Like, you know what? There's, there's so often in hockey where, you know, something crazy will happen on one end. And I'm almost convinced that it has to happen to balance out this amazing other piece. And so he gave me that stick and like, I fell in love with it. And it's still the pattern that I use today. Wow. Yeah. And they, we talk about again influence of certain people step into your life, and you know a, a life a lifetime uh, of influence with just one interaction. And Mark was, of course, I think back in the, in the WHA days, a lot of guys got a lot of attention as they should have. Real Cloutier and uh, Hedberg and Nilsson, Mark Tardif, but as an all around player, I'm not sure anybody compared with the talent of uh, of Mark Howe, to be sure. What type of uh, player was Gordy Howe at that time? Well, Gordy was still uh, one of the best players on the ice. And the thing is, uh, he had to be played lots. Because if he sat down for too long, he'd get cold. Mm-hmm. And so in Houston, he got to play lots. And he was a very good hockey player. And the reason he could play was, one, he was, he was uh, one of the best skaters on the ice. Like, Mark was a better skater but just barely. Like, that's how good a skater Gordy was. So beautiful, strong stride. And the thing is, and he had lots of room. And, he'd be, and uh, you know, he would, well, with his stick and his elbows, and, like, he created room. So, and, and I mean, he was strong on the puck. Well, like, I mean, he, he got the puck. It was tough for guys to get the puck off him. He was good at getting the puck to the net. And, um, yeah, so at that time, he was still one of the best players on on the team. When the arrows fold, uh, you end up, and a lot of your teammates end up becoming uh, members of the Winnipeg Jets. Now, this is an incredibly interesting story in hockey, probably worthy of a movie at some point, where your arrows group combines with the arch-rival Winnipeg Jets, and the Jets team is going through some upheaval. Bobby Hull was only the last four games into that year. Lars-Eric Schuberg was hurt. The Swedes were gone. It's a very interesting dynamic. Ultimately, Tommy McVie comes onto the scene, brings uh, Gary Suitcase Smith, the goaltender, along with him. Uh, I talked about this with Terry Roskowski. I find it to be very fascinating. Uh, I, what was your impression of of that team when you got there and how did it make that transformation from kind of a dysfunctional team to a WHA champion? It's interesting. Different players have different opinions around this. And when I got there, I thought there was definitely a two clicks. There was the Houston click and there was the Winnipeg click. Mm-hmm. And I think that was understandable. There were two teams that did not like each other. And, uh, so it took a little while. I'd say there was, you know, like distrust. It takes a while for men to trust each other. They get to trust each other by doing stuff together. 
So, I mean, we had to spend time together. And uh, the thing was, there was, Quebec was an amazing team, and the Oilers with Gretzky, well, they would get Gretzky. They had a very good team, too. Heck, they had Sobchuk there, Stan Weir, uh, Ron Chipperfield. Mm-hmm. So it ended up that we struggled and uh, did not really play as good as what we couldn't think about it, though. We actually, Bobby Hull left after four games because of an incident that happened. And the team had lost Hedberg and Nielsen. And so, like, it was a team that was attempting to get a new identity. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we actually, at times, just did not play that good. And it eventually it cost Larry Hillman his job. And uh, that was one thing, though. I think when Tom McVie came in, it was kind of like a new starting point. It was a new starting point A. And uh, and uh, and then Tom ran extremely hard practices, which I loved. Right. And uh, it ended up that things started to come together. And uh, and and what ended up happening was uh, he really he really mixed a lot of Houston players with, uh, like Rich Preston played on a line with Peter Sullivan, Kent Nielsen, and and then. Uh, Willie Lindstrom came over and played with uh, Raskowski and myself. So in the end, there wasn't any of this Houston-Winnipeg thing. It it had disappeared. You score 65 goals that year. So you're feeling it. You you increase your totals from 27 to year 140 in your second year in Houston, and you explode for 65 goals. What was the – and then in the playoffs, you know, you had uh, eight – in 10 games there as well. So an incredible season at WHA was down to six teams. So it was very competitive with a lot of real good young players in the league coming in. Uh, what was the key to uh, that tremendous season for you on a personal basis? Well, the key was playing with uh, Terry Ruskowski and Rich Preston, both guys who love to pass the puck. Uh, I'm at, I was actually better without the puck than with it. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason is, is that because I had real good speed, so I could get to the openings. I could get in behind the defenseman. I could get to the net. All I required was for the puck to show up. And uh, playing with Ruskowski, Preston, and then at times with Kent Nielsen, and then with Willie Lindstrom. Uh, these were all guys that, well, Kent Nielsen, I mean, he was absolutely amazing. He was a player that could hold on to the puck. And then right at the right time, just slide it over. And if I was good at anything, I was good at pumping the puck into a wide open net from about 10 feet away. <laughs> right. And, uh, and Kent, he, he could set it up. When the season ends, you, you win the championship. And of course, with the WHA teams coming out to the NHL, the Winnipeg Jets can only protect two skaters. And it's quite, a, I guess, an honor for you. All the great players you just mentioned, Kent Nilsson's Terry Ruskowski, as examples, uh, you were one of two players chosen to be protected by the Winnipeg Jets. And the Jets go into the NHL somewhat undermanned, however, with all the players they lost. I was curious if you noticed a significant difference between the caliber of play in the WHA to the NHL when you got there in 1979. Well, the caliber was better. The NHL was perhaps a little bit deeper. And yet, uh, I think the Edmonton Oilers proved that the caliber wasn't that much better because within a, 
a very short time they had beaten Montreal out of the playoffs. Right. It was definitely better, bigger, stronger, meaner. Although in, I don't know the WHA was pretty mean too. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> that's one spot where the WHA did have a. And the WHA was a very, very tough, tough, mean league. Mm-hmm. I just wish, I just really wish that we could go back through time. I really wish that the NHL would have let us keep our team. I mean, look at what happened. They, thank goodness they learned from it because when Vegas came in, uh, they exactly. gave Vegas a fighting chance. Right. That's yeah. always one of the great what-ifs when I talk to Winnipeg fans. What if Boris Lukowicz, Kent Nilsson, Terry Ruskowski, Rich Preston, uh, Barry Long, and uh, all those guys get a chance to, uh, to stay together. Willie Lindstrom, and that, that whole group get a chance to stay together right into uh, the National Hockey League. But uh, eventually the franchise recovers. You play in the NHL All-Star game uh, your first two years in the league, playing extremely well. And you have your most productive season, 81-82, you had 92 points, 43 goals, and 49 assists. Dale Howarchuk has joined the team. You also had a new coach, Tom Watt, kind of an interesting, unique individual in hockey annals, as I recall. Um, what was he like as a coach, and what was that whole atmosphere like uh, as the Jets are starting to you, – I think you made the biggest improvement in hockey history from season to season. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that 81-82 season? It really helped to get Dave Babbage. Dale Howard, Chuck, um, but also Dougie Smale had come along. I think, I think Thomas Steen might have been there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he was. So heck, all of a sudden we had added some talent, some very, very, very good talent. And the only good thing about the first two years in the NHL, and it was, I mean. In our second year, it was really unfortunate because we just got onto a really unlucky streak and we ended up not winning in 35 games. So there were times when we were like two goals ahead with like a minute and a half left or something, and the other team would tie us. Mm-hmm. So, but it really was attempting to win with an American Hockey League team in the NHL, and so it just it really wasn't fair. But. Uh, the only good thing about it was in the second year, we were so bad that it actually created the opportunity to be the most improved team ever in the history of the NHL, I believe, a 46-point improvement, I think. But boy, I'll tell you what, I would not want to go through that nine wins in one season again. Oh, my gosh. That was terrible. What is it like? I've talked about this recently with uh, John Van Boxbeer. We're talking about playing for the Colorado Rockies, and you know, the team would be losing so consistently. Uh, what, what kind of a challenge is it for you to get geared up to play uh, every night facing that type of continuous losing? The thing is, is that getting prepared for the next game isn't the thing. Because we were a young squad, so we would, we would get ready for the next game again. Uh, a couple of things. One was uh, the confidence. Like it's winning breeds confidence. And so it was difficult to be confident at that time. And then the other thing is that um, if we got scored on, sometimes we would lose four guys. Right. You could just One thing that I really observed was where do men quit? 
and we'd get scored on, and it was kind of like, I call it the here we go again syndrome. Right, right. And what would happen is we'd have some guys that basically, it would, it would almost have been better not to play them because they, they had all, they, they had sort of like already started to check out. Mm-hmm. And then we got another goal scored on us. It was, then we'd lose a couple other guys. So that was the, getting re-motivated for the next game. I didn't, I don't think, I, I, I always got, I could always get ready for the next game. And that was one good thing is I was always ready to go, ready to go. Right. And it would, uh, but we'd lose guys. And, then, and at that time we were, we had to have everybody in order to win. So Boris, you're rolling along. You've got a, you've had a tremendous career with the Winnipeg Jets. As we said, two all-star uh, nominations, I think three, th- three or four seasons, over 30 goals. And, in the 84-85 season, you were traded for ex-junior teammate uh, Jim Nill. You were traded to the Boston Bruins. Was that a trade that you anticipated, and what was your reaction to it? Well, it was a trade that I had asked for, sadly. Uh, it's strange how hockey can go that can go from the penthouse to the outhouse. And uh, somewhere where the Jets had had lots of confidence in me and uh, wanted me to be one of the players uh, to lead them to, uh, to winning, uh, they, they uh, gave up on me. And the thing is, one of the toughest things in hockey and one of the most painful things is to sit on the bench and not get an opportunity to play. So that is what had happened. I, I got written out of the... The, uh, the Winnipeg Jets plan. And like I was saying, if, if, I, if I could do something over, I wish that I had asked for a meeting with the owner, Barry Shankaro, the general manager, John Ferguson, and the uh, head coach at that time, Barry Long. Because it seemed like even when I got on the ice and I played well, that I went straight back to the bench. So I one time asked Barry Long, I said, like, will I ever play here again? And he said, no, he won't. And Barry was a teammate of mine. Yeah. And um, so I was disappointed that he was benching me the way he was. So the thing was, I never did find out whose uh, idea it was. But the thing was, I'd scored 30 goals the year before. And um, so it was disappointing to be written out of their out of the plans, especially when I was young and in good shape. Now the thing is, is that after uh, Christmas and the next year, and I was waiting to see if possibly something might change, and uh, it didn't. So I just I, I finally went to John Ferguson and asked him if I could be traded. And I think because him and uh, Harry Sinden were close buddies. It was uh, an easy, or they could work something out. Now, you know what, um, John Ferguson is a really good man. I remember the day I got traded. He, I came on the bus and he, and he said to me, he said to me, well, you know what, you got your wish. I've traded you today. And it was sad. And uh, I remember I went over to him and I, I told him thanks. 
did that many good years. Well, or tough years at Winnipeg, and yet I really enjoyed playing for him. And it's just crazy in sport how sometimes it goes like that. Right. I, I'm, yeah. So, you know, the thing is, is that it was pretty cool to come to the Boston Bruins. Wow. The original 16. I love their jerseys. I grew up watching the Esteban Bruins because my cousin Bernie Lukowicz played there right. on a line with Lauren Hanning, who eventually became a New York Islander. And uh, it was kind of interesting. When I came into the dressing room, I looked around, and the open spot was beside Ray Bork wow. on his left side. Yeah, so I, yeah, I went, wow, this is pretty cool. I, so I asked Ray if I could sit in that stall and he said sure and, I, and yet I thought to myself why is it why why would that spot be open and then I learned shortly afterwards that after a game uh, there's the reporters actually give the players very little time because they're attempting to get their uh, reports in and they had their interviews in and so it was almost immediately after the game uh, basically just sat down put our gloves up hardly even had a uh, a breath or two and then the reporters were inside and who did they come to so I actually got a little bit it was a little bit difficult to, to get undressed so and uh, so that was the only downside of that it was actually very enjoyable to, to sit beside Ray and one he sweated more than any hockey player I'd ever met it was incredible. Like the sweat just poured off. Like just sitting beside him, I, I would get soaked. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, at the end of every period, he was brought new gloves. Like at that time, there weren't the heaters to dry out the gloves, so he was given a, a different set of gloves. And then at the end of the second period, he was given a new jersey and uh, a fresh jersey. And uh, it like took two guys to haul the other one away. <laughs> like it was amazing like he just the sweat just poured off of him. It was, and um, it was interesting every once in a while just to ask him what he was thinking it was surprising sometimes to answer where would you rank uh, Ray Bork among the the players you've played with over the years oh Ray Bork was one of the greatest defensemen of all time we've got Bobby Orr Paul Coffey and like I think Ray's at the top five and uh, yeah, so it was pretty, pretty thrilling to uh, to sit with him, or to sit beside him. Right. And um, you know, and, and the the thing is, I had a good start in Boston. Like the first game, I think I got a goal, three assists, and uh, and, I, and I started to play some really good hockey for Boston, and then. What happened was we were playing playing uh, the Islanders one night in the in uh, on Long Island, and the puck went into the corner to the goalie's left, and I made the mistake of going back to get it. I wish I hadn't, because I, I I went back with speed and I thought I could get the puck and turn out turn out of the corner and start to bring the puck out. And uh, as I was going to the corner, I did not realize that uh, uh, Pat Flatley was following me. Did 
as I got the puck and I turned where I didn't expect anybody, all of a sudden Flatley was there and he just creeped me. And I got a, a high ankle sprain on my uh, on my right leg. And so that would have happened right about, maybe about halfway through March. Right. And a high ankle sprain, like it took six months for that to heal wow. before it finally did heal. Like, uh, so we would tape it up for games. But I mean, my skating was my strength. And, uh, with a high ankle sprain, I was not able to skate. And so it ended up, I did not finish off the season very well. I did uh, get it. I think I got into maybe one playoff game. So where I could have really been an asset to the Bruins, I mean, that injury really took a, took away from it. Right. Then to, to kind of go into the next season, um, I worked extremely hard through the summer. Uh, actually, at a gym in Danvers, I believe it was right in uh, the rink or close to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened was I I took track and I kept track of every workout I did during the the summer because I did cycling, uh, <laughs> stair climbing. What well, was cool? A stair climber actually gave a printout of the workout. And uh, all the strength training I did, uh, I did all sorts of. I did a running program because I knew it was going to be uh, it was going to be tough to be in the Bruins' plan come the next year. Uh, Butch Goring took over from uh, Jerry Cheevers as head coach, and uh, like it was if Jerry got let go when I was in the first year. Like in the spring, Harry took over, and then uh, he hired Butch to start the, the next season. So when we had uh, our start of the season interview, so it was with Butch and also Mike Milbury. Right. What I did was I brought all I, I brought along the journal that I kept of all my workouts, and uh, so we sat down and Butch started the conversation off and. And I, and I, I just kind of interrupted him and said, "Hey, Butch, like I know right now, I'm not in the Bruins' plan." And he kind of stared at me, and I said, "Like Harry doesn't like me. Uh, I mean, and yet you know what? That injury really affected, hurt me last year. I wasn't able to perform. So I said, I just asked, give me a fair chance to show to let show you that I'm one of the best players, and uh, that's all I'm asking." Is through the exhibition season, give me some ice time so I can go go put up some numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the end, he said, "Well, he said you want more? You're right. You aren't in the plan. So he says you better have a really, really good training camp. Like, give me something." And uh, I said, "Okay." And then if I had a really good training camp. Uh, and I think I led the team in scoring. So it was a very good meeting. It was right at the end of training camp, and we had another meeting, and uh, we Butch and Mike, and, and, uh, and Butch said, Joe, congratulations. Like, you have earned yourself a spot on the team. Then if I started out on a line with uh, Kenny Lindsman and Keith Crowder, we had a good line. Yeah. But I was so written out of the plan that I hadn't had any sticks ordered for me by the training staff. Wow. So 
So coming into the into the training camp, I had about a half a dozen uh, Sherwood uh, 50 30 sticks. And I use a specific kind of lie, a very high lie, like I said, Mark Howe's lie. And uh, a specific kind of curve. And all of a sudden, I didn't have any sticks. So we put in a rush order with, uh, with Sherwood. So I ended up attempting to use somebody else's stick. And uh, I attempted to use Ray's. And it was a different lie, different curve. Uh, I attempted to use Mike, Michael uh, Talbot's stick. Or, uh, no, uh, I think Kayleen. Mm-hmm. And they, they were just, they, didn't, they worked. And, and confidence is such an important thing for a goal scorer. And uh, it's maybe a bit of an excuse. And yet, because I used such a high line, it was, it, it affected my shooting. And I must have hit about 20 goal posts. So at the start of that season, um, Charlie Simmer had, by the time Charlie had 17 goals and was leading the NHL, in goals the court I had two mm-hmm. and if I got they put on waivers from Lee Kelly so that was a that was a bit of a sad point because I'd worked so hard during the summer getting ready and uh, to earn a spot on the team to be playing with two tremendous players in Linsman and Crowder and uh, and then for it not to work out was very disappointing and then you end up having is the sticks finally show up, <laughs> but they show up when I'm in LA. Of course. Yeah. So it was. Uh, I mean, that was that was a little bit disappointing that when I came to training camp, like I didn't have any hockey. Right. Strange things you would never happen these days. How was the? Uh, I, in, in, how was the Los Angeles experience? And you, you played with Pat Quinn. Um, team was kind of up and down during that that stretch of time. How did you enjoy your your stay in California? Well, I really enjoyed playing for Pat Quinn. I think he was one of the best coaches around. He's very much a player's coach, and uh, was really uh, invested in uh, helping the player play better. And um, so when I came there. I had really, like, I'd lost my confidence. And then actually what was kind of cool was Mark Hardy, a defenseman, mentioned that he had been spending some time with a sports psychologist by the name of Dr. Saul Miller mm-hmm. and, uh, and and felt that he was really helping his game. Well, at that time, nobody knew anything about sports psychology. And so uh, the team was would pay for it. The team would condone it. Uh, where I where I, I think I approached Pat about it, he said, "Well, he thought it, he didn't know anything about sports psychology, but he thought it'd be worth a, a, a shot. But it would, I'd have to pay for it on my dime." So it ended up that uh, I had a meeting with Saul Miller, and, uh, and I think at that time it was like five hundred bucks a month, and uh, he ended up really helping me. And we're good friends today, very good friends. Oh wow, it's great. And and uh, he uh, he helped me get my confidence back, and he helped me get my time back with the puck. Like, um, and so it was uh, a very cool way to finish off that season. <laughs> the 
next season, what was kind of exciting was we had three amazing rookies come to us. We had Jimmy Carson, who eventually got traded for Wayne Gretzky. We had Luke Robitaille, who in his first eight years in the NHL for the LA Kings, the fewest number of goals they ever scored was 44. <laughs> right. Isn't that something? It is, especially for a guy who was drafted, I think, in the eighth round or something, like way down, sixth I, round. I, I, I think ninth round, actually. Wow. We, we, can look, we can look it up. And, yeah, so it, uh, it's amazing. You know, after eight years of scoring at least 44 goals, he gets traded. So it's, it's just strange what a guy has to do. But uh, I thought, oh, so what happened was uh, I was pretty honored by something because Pat came and asked me if I would mentor Jimmy Carson. So he was going to have Marcel mentor, uh, Marcel Dion mentor Luke. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was going to have me met, uh, mentor um, Jimmy Carson. So Jimmy and I became very good friends. And uh, on the right wing was uh, Sean McKenna sometimes or Jimmy Fox. And uh, we ended up having a really good life. The disappointing thing in that year was that it was kind of an interesting thing because the last game that Pat Quinn ever coached was the, the last game in 1986. It was a New Year's game, and we played the Boston Bruins. And uh, the game went into overtime. And in overtime, Ray Bork brought the puck up the ice, and he lost it at center. And I was kind of drifted back, like being a floater. And I was in behind him, and I remember I turned to Jimmy Carson at the pocket. And I was it's kind of, kind of as a player unsure to whether to give the yell because he, he might attract some traffic, or or or, or do you not do you not yell? It won't be seen. And end up I, as I was turning to get going because I knew I was gone. All I required was the puck. I was just going to yell when I saw Jimmy saw me. I didn't say anything. He threw a perfect pass. And I got the puck, and I was behind everybody. And it was amazing on this goal. Like, from the blue line in, time slowed down. Mm-hmm. It took about five minutes for the goal to happen. <laughs> and actually, Billy, Ram- Billy Ramford was the goalie. And um, I had played with Billy. He had been a rookie in, in, uh, in Boston. So, like, every rookie has a weakness. And Billy, you know, it just takes a little while to, to figure out what it is. But Billy... He came in, like his hands and his blocker were amazing. He came in and gave a little fake, little fake shot, and then went sideways. He'd open up his five hole and he could drive a semi trailer through there. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what I did. I just came in and gave a little fake, moved sideways, and I just tossed it in between his legs. And uh, it, it ended up, uh, so it was an overtime winner. It was so bloody exciting. And the team jumped over the boards. I remember I got creamed by Bob Ford, first of all. And then, you know, there's, then there's the dog pile. And, and uh, it just felt so good. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being my 199th NHL goal. Uh, so after the game, we actually go out for New Year's to uh, the home of Johnny Weissmuller, who was the very first uh, Tarzan. Right, and uh, they had turned they had turned his LA home into a uh, a place where parties could be held, and uh, it was kind of 
uh, he had a, about a 25 meter lap pool, and like it was only about uh, four feet wide and 25 you know, 25 feet long, or and uh, no, about 20, yeah, about 25 feet. So it, it, it was very cool to see them. And so here, scored an overtime winning goal. Pretty excited. I'm the top plus minus player on the team. Jimmy's the second top plus minus player. And uh, things are pretty good. We talk about the penthouse. We open up the paper the next day to find out that Pat is taking the uh, head coach and GM job with Vancouver. And so he's at a conflict of interest. He's taking it for the next season. And so he's gone. Wow. All of a sudden. Yeah, all of a sudden. I forgot all about that. The coach. Yeah, all of a sudden he's gone. And so we start off January 1 with a new coach. Uh, and so Mike Murphy steps in. So the next game, and I, I tell this because it's simply a fact, although it's going to come across as a bit of a victim story. It's, and it's just strange what can happen. So the next game we go for warm up. And uh, as I'm coming off the ice, uh, I'm walking down the left side, and I see Mike's over on the right side of the hallway. So he's waiting to tell whatever player you know, that he isn't going to dress because that's normally done right after warm-up. Right. So I'm walking to the left, and I see him on the right, and he comes over to the left side of the hallway. So I see that, so I go over to the right side. And he pops over back to the right side. <laughs> And so then I pop back over to the left side, and he pops over to the left side. And I think, you've got to be kidding. And he comes and he says, uh, you want more, so uh, you won't be playing tonight. I, I'd like to add some muscle to the lineup, and so uh, you're not going to dress. And I said, it's like, Mike, you've got to be kidding. You're starting off your NHL coaching career? as a head coach and you're benching the guy that scored the overtime winning goal the night before like what are you saying to the players mm-hmm. that you're going to award excellence with getting benched like do you know the, the subconscious message that you're sending and so we had an argument in the hallway and, and I said to him look this is a terrible decision on your side like, I just scored the overtime winner. I'm the top plus minor and minus. I've got the top plus on the team. Like, I think, think this over. Like, like what are you saying? Like, what's the message you're giving? It's incredible. So he said, no, no. He says, I've already made up my mind. It's like, oh, scoring the overtime winning goal to not dressing. Like, is that messed up or what? Right. It's, uh, you know, you've had, and you've talked earlier about getting cut as a peewee. You come back from that. You were in a situation in junior where you had a, a situation where you may have been sent down and resisted that and didn't. WHA, Bill Deneen, sent you to Oklahoma City. You didn't go. Uh, overcoming a lot of adversity, you know, with, with the, the Jets, the Bruins, and you face it in the most unlikely time now with the Los Angeles Kings. I mean, as you said, the top of the world, overtime goal, it's New Year's, it's L.A., everybody's happy, and then wham, just like that. 
uh, new coach and the, the your world gets tipped upside down. Uh, Morris, you, you talked a little bit uh, yesterday about, and I'm keeping this subject in, in, in mind, about some of the dark times, some of the uh, times when uh, you were, were challenged from, from a from a mental disappoint uh, standpoint or, or depression standpoint, uh, how are you dealing with this certain change of circumstances in Los Angeles? I think I actually just didn't recover from that. I ended up getting back and, and playing fairly good hockey, but mm-hmm. um, and you know what? I'm I think I'm actually mistaken when I say that was my last goal because now I'm thinking that what happened was I worked my way back into the lineup. Yeah, I did, because I ended up on a line with Bernie Nichols and Jimmy Fox. So this was kind of a, well, this is an interesting story, too, because we go in to play Winnipeg back-to-back games, like back-to-back nights. And um, the first night, our line, look, we, we end up winning 10-3, to and our line scores like seven goals. Bernie's first star, I'm second star, Jimmy boxes third stuff. And uh, so then the very next day we're going to play again. And uh, again, after warm-up, uh, Mike comes over and says, I'm not going to play. Like, I mean, it's just a puzzle how a player can go from second star to not playing. Right. So, so yeah, so I just really struggled in understanding a couple of decisions uh, that he made. But so, even in that game, I took a look and thought, well, how could, well, how can I possibly, what, what can I possibly benefit from this? Like, what, what good can come out of it? So I sat down and thought about it, and I went over to, went to Mike, and I said, Mike, you know what? If I'm not going to play tonight, then would it be okay if I uh, got behind the bench and was an assistant coach? I said, maybe there's something I can see that can help my own game, or maybe that can help uh, other guys' games. And uh, he, he kind of stared at me for a while. And I said, really? I said, I'll stay out of the way. I just, you know, instead of being in the stands, I'd rather be in the, still a, a member of the team. And so he said, well, okay, sure. And he said, just stay out of my way. So it was, uh, so I got back there and I had on the headphones and was watching the game. And it's, you know, it's actually a little bit difficult to watch the game from back there. The players get in the way quite a bit. <laughs> right. And uh, but anyways, we came down and for and it was about four minutes left in the third period, and we were down by two goals. I think it was four to two. And I was thinking, like, what can I possibly contribute that could help the team? And so I went over, and I had had a theory for years that. Uh, so I went over and I tucked Mike on the on the uh, jacket sleeve, and uh, he said, "Yeah." What's up? And I said, you know what, Mike? There's four minutes left in the game. We're down by two goals. We've got to get prepared to pull our goalie within the next 30 seconds because that's the only chance we'll have of winning. And he kind of stared at me. He said, what are you talking about? Pull the goalie was like three and a half minutes left. And I said, yes. It typically takes about a minute and a half to two minutes to score a goal with the goalie pull. And so who cares if we give up a goal? Five, two. Four two five two. Who cares? But we, the, our enemy now is the clock. It's not the Jets anymore. It's the clock. Then he looked at me and he said, 
you know, leave me alone. And it was kind of, <laughs> so now coaches, like they pull the goaltender with two minutes, three minutes, depending on how many goals they're behind. So there was one thing I felt I was uh, sort of one step ahead of the game there mm-hmm. by uh, making that suggestion to him. And it ended up we didn't pull the goaltender until the last uh, about 45 seconds. And it's almost impossible to score two goals in 45 seconds. Right. So, uh, yeah, he didn't listen to me. And, and so as a result, we didn't, uh, we didn't score any goals. We didn't tie up the game. We didn't win the game. But those are two instances where I was pretty disappointed where uh, somehow he was a rewarding excellence with getting sat out. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things about being a professional athlete that gets underestimated, I think, just from my own observations, is it can be an extraordinarily insecure profession. So you have all the benefits of it, uh, the the pay or the lifelong fulfillment, the adulation, whatever you want to call it, but there's always something. There's always some uh, some new coach. There's always new players coming in. It's it's uh, it's an insecure business that can be uh, taken from you uh, at sometimes irrationally and sometimes suddenly. Morris, you recently had an interesting interview with the Winnipeg Free Press. You talked a little bit about the depression that you suffered in your lifetime and while playing hockey. And you've learned that there could be a very strong link between wheat consumption, glutens, etc., mind-body connection to that depression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's something I'd actually like to talk more about to audiences because I'm convinced that uh, you know there's such a focus on <clears throat> on with our body what we actually put into our body, so we stay in good shape. Well. How about how important is what we put into our our body for our mind? Like, could certain foods be really impacting our mind? And it's amazing. Like, my niece is a celiac, so like, about thirty years ago, uh, she just about passed away as a child. Like, nobody knew it. Nobody like her tummy was like a balloon, and uh, it was because. Uh, the glutens at that time just flattened out all the villi in her stomach, in in her uh, small intestine. And so she just about starved to death. And so it was very interesting. Like, I I just really consider myself blessed that I got found out about uh, the book Wheat Belly and then a second one called Grain Grain. Mm -hmm. It just talks about how the glutens over the last 50 years have been made stronger, uh, probably accidentally, through uh, uh, GM, uh, genetic modification and also something called hybrid, hybridization. And when I read this, and, and the thing was, I, I reflected back how when I was playing, we used to eat meat, like lots and lots and lots. And then what happened was there was a switch over to pasta. Like we always used to eat steaks for pregame meals. And all of a sudden, it was kind of like college guys, I think, started to bring in the idea of, of eating pasta for a pregame meal. Right. So what happens? We all start eating pasta, mostly whole wheat pasta. When I take a look back at, at when I really started to experience depression, I was even experiencing it while I was playing in the NHL. And I can remember I used to get out of it by 
having lunch with some friends and we would kind of talk about things and laugh things off or I, or the exercise I think would straighten my head out. But mm-hmm. when I got to the NHL, like, oh my, I went through black depression. Like, at times I think I'm still lucky. I'm lucky that I'm still around. Wow. It just got, yeah, so black and dark. And, uh, and it's amazing, though. A few years ago, like, I just went, <laughs> you know what this is? crazy thing about this is too, Mark, is, like, when I finished the NHL, I started in junior at 141 pounds at 17. When I finished, I was 168. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ended up, like, when I was 20, I was about 160. And then when I was one, I finished at 168, and I stayed. So I, went, I finished at 30, and I stayed that way until about I was about 58, 168 pounds. Like, it just doesn't fluctuate. And uh, I read Wheat Belly, and so I went off all gluten. I went off all whole wheat pasta, whole wheat bread, and whole wheat cereals, which I used to eat by the truckload. Right. I just went off all of them. Also went off an antidepressant that I was on. I'd, I'd wean myself off it. And I uh, went on a micronutrient uh, called uh, EMP from a company called True Hope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was amazing. The depression didn't come back, but also in the in the one month in one month that I that I went off the glutens, I lost eight pounds. Wow! Which I didn't think I had to lose. I like I'm pretty well skin stretched over steel, <laughs> and uh, and my weight went from 168 to 160. Like in one month. Wow! And since I've dropped about another seven pounds. So I'm actually at about 153 now and still strong. But it's just amazing. Like some, like 15 pounds, like at least 10 went away. And in the book, it actually talks about visceral fat that surrounds our organs. And so during that month, like even though I didn't see anything happening in the mirror, like the only place I could see the change was on the scale. But like, so for people who are struggling with their weight, and they're eating hamburgers every day. I mean, and uh, pastas and like, I think that if they just really gave a consideration to just eliminating gluten. And actually the book even talks about how for the first few days, it'll really, there'll be a withdrawal period. And yeah, and then I know I felt it and I went through it. And, and then everything was after three days. It's just like, but I've, I've hardly touched anything since. Morris, over the years, you've taught thousands of young hockey players, hockey skills, the psychology of hockey, etc. What are you looking to impart based on your life experiences? What are you looking to impart to young players who are training with you? Well, when I took a look at goal scoring, uh, there was originally the saying that a, a player is either born a goal, goal scorer or he's not. And I mean, I do agree that there are certain players where God has reached down and touched them. Mm-hmm. And they are amazing. Like Donnie Murdoch was one that Donnie Murdoch just knew how to score goals. And he's, he's, he is only, there's only two guys ever that as a rookie have scored five goals in one game. Howie Meeker was one in about 1948, and Donnie Murdoch was second in 1970. <laughs> Yeah. That's a good piece of history. I didn't. I didn't know how he how he scored five. I remember uh, Don Murdoch's five for the Rangers, 
Um, your your former line mate, of course, as we discussed earlier. So yeah, he uh, he he had something there. Yeah, and actually, Donnie's got an amazing story where he, with four seconds left, he is on the bench and he has four goals. And Phil Esposito actually comes over to the bench and says to Freddie Shiro, "Hey, uh, Freddie, uh, should we get the rookie as fifth? And uh, Freddie thinks about it for a second. He says, "Sure." And I know Donnie would have just been chomping at the bit. He jumps over the boards. They had a face-off, and I think it was Philadelphia's end. And Phil, who was, I think, one of the best face-off men of all time, uh, he had a, just a great big blade on his stick, and he was strong, and uh, he could win face-offs. And uh, he used his body as leverage with his stick in order to get the puck back. And he said, he said, Doc, stand right here when the puck comes to you. Shoot it as quick as you can. And Donnie scored his fifth goal like with one second left. <laughs> like yeah. that is that is an amazing story. And I think uh, I think it was Kelly Lindbergh was the goaltender, maybe. But uh, I I remember watching it and he fired it in off the goalpost. And uh, so, and actually, I was watching it in a bar in Houston called Vix. But um, <laughs> yeah, good re- you the, have good recall, the by the way. Yeah, so it was and uh, amazing five goals by uh, by Donnie. So um, the thing is, with so my goal scoring, what I took a look at is I, I thought there were some specific moves that a player had to learn in order to uh, like. The, and one of them is called the Crosby move. Another one is the Ovechkin move. Another one is the Datsuk move. Another one is the Sedin move. So these are all specific moves that those specific players were really experts at. And so, um, like, I wish I had known the Ovechkin move when I played. I didn't. I actually learned it by watching him. And he has a specific move where he actually takes a shot, pushes the puck, goes past the defender on the goalie, and typically shoots it in a wide-open net. And, uh, like, 20 years ago, that move just wasn't seen. So, um, so I teach players all of these individual skills, and then um, what I do is I, I teach them the most effective way to start, and then also actually my very first principle is that everything happens in a strong way and a weak way. Everything, everything, everything. And when we figure out what, it's an irony, when we figure out what the strong way is, then use that about 96% of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we, and then, for example, which is stronger when we are controlling the puck? Two hands on the stick or one? Which? Oh, that would be two hands. Yeah, two hands, of course. Yeah, two hands. I mean, you're just simply stronger. So that's the strong. So handle the puck as often as possible with two hands on the stick. Now, though, which on a breakaway? Which is stronger, two hands on the stick or one? Typically one. You're mm-hmm. ever so slightly faster. So that's the very first principle I teach to the players, is that everything happens in a strong way or a weak way. And it's just a matter of identifying those and then learning. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then uh, they learn the individual skills, and then what I do is I coach, uh, and then also how to maximize power coming out of a turn because that is one of the most important things in skating. So it's how to maximize speed in a straight line, how to maximize speed uh, coming out of turns. 
And because um, there's a specific way to do it that is strong. And it's actually was taught to me by a coach who uh, studied uh, uh, the Russians. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the, uh, then I teach a plan A, B, C, and D in the attack. Plan A is called the attack. B is the battle. C is the cycle. And D is deflections. And really hockey, when it's broken down, that's really sums it all up on the goal scoring side. So typically it takes about a week to get through just about all the, well, a good piece of the materials. There's still lots to learn after that. So really I, I've taught, I've worked with thousands of kids here and, uh, of which, uh, some now are getting in an NHL like Morrissey in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had a number of players get into U.S. college, some guys over in Europe. And it, uh, when this is taught to young players and then they start to work on these skills and they start to get the knowledge of uh, when they're going down the ice so they have a, a real good plan in place of exactly how they're going to beat the defense, um, it takes a player to a whole new level. With all that you've learned about the psychology and the mental preparation for hockey, is that something that you include in your uh, curriculum as well? Yeah, it is. Like one of the most important points is when I'm working with players, I ask for the player to talk from the eye. It's amazing how many times in pre- post-game interviews, uh, when a player is being interviewed, he will actually talk to the third person. He will actually say, well, in, when in the, you know that when you get the puck and you get your shot away, and like I, I ask coach <laughs> players to own their language. So instead, it's so when I get that opportunity over time, and when I got in front of the net, and when I was there, and, and so I took the best shot that I could. Instead of you took the best shot you could, like it's really about owning it. Very that's interesting. That's the very first piece that I, yeah, that's the very first piece I teach is talk from the eye. Really own, take ownership of uh, all of our actions. Uh, Morse, uh, you're an incredibly insightful guy. I've really appreciated it. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, and I'm, I'm glad I had that opportunity. We went in a lot of different directions. We went one heck of a lot longer than I anticipated, which was awesome for me, but I appreciate you. Uh, spending the time and taking us right through uh, youth, the WHA, the NHL. And, but I think most importantly, just wanted to really extend a uh, sincere thank you uh, for being with us. A heck of a career, a real nice guy, and greatly appreciated uh, the valuable time we had a chance to spend together on the show today. Right on. Thank you, Mark. I really uh, I appreciate everybody listening to the stories. And you know what? It was actually, it was very, I was very blessed very, very lucky. I, I had amazing mentors and my brother, Ed Lukowicz, um, being able to play with guys like Gordy Hull, Bobby Hull, sit beside Ray Bork. Um, we're just really very blessed. Mm-hmm. Well, we were blessed to have you with us as well. And Morris, we look very much forward to talking to you again soon. Right on. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. 
Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to, contact us through our website at ProHockeyAlumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Thanks for listening.